Earlier this week, I asked uh, David and Kelly Bailey if there was any chance that they could learn that particular song that we just sang. The song was written by uh, Chris Tomlin, and the story behind it is that uh, his good friend Louis Giglio, who teaches uh, the Passion series that has swept across a lot of college campuses and, and universities, uh, Louis was going through a, a tough time, and it was one of those seasons in his life where he felt like he, he wasn't hearing from God, and that even when he was trying to pray, everything was dead. And he was reading through the Psalms, and noticed a number of times that David would write in the Psalms about lifting his hands in praise toward God. And he thought, I can't lift my hands in praise. I, there's nothing good worth praising God for right now in the season I'm going through in life. And the thought hit him, what if I just lifted my hands toward God, asking him to allow me to believe again? And so, so here's a veteran believer, a veteran follower of Christ, a, a, a national teacher, who nonetheless is going through one of those dark times in life. And he turned three or four lines that he'd been kind of mulling over in his mind over to Chris Tomlin, and Tomlin turned it into that song. So towards the end of this service, we're going to actually close with that song again. And I don't know where you're at, but if, if you're one of those people who, A, is struggling right now and you're feeling like God is far away, and that even just the act of getting here to church is difficult, and two, you're one of those people who may not naturally lift your hands and praise to God anyway, would you think about this? What about lifting your hands to God simply as a gesture saying, Help me believe again. Think about that over the next few minutes. Well, I'm glad that you're here today. Um, uh, Bill Whitehill e emailed me late last night, and he had been going to come in and, and paint on the, one of the standards here. He had a new drawing, but he sent me an image that he had instead. This is the one he had for today for our, our Hope series. I thought it was very fitting. Well, today we're going to talk about hope in dark times, and uh, it's based on one verse, Job 13, 14, which reads, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Here's the larger context, Job 13, verses 13 through 16. Job says, Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no good person would dare come before him. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for allowing us to gather here today to laugh a little bit together, to open your word, and uh, to ponder this phenomenal statement from Job, where he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Help us to understand that kind of hope. Give us that kind of hope that can be stretched beyond what we think is our capacity now, a hope that will sustain us through difficult times. Lord, it's easy to, to have hope when everything's going well. But when the challenges come, that's when we need hope from you most. And so I pray that you will use this passage of Scripture, this talk, this time together 
to produce that in us. We know for that to happen, we have to open up our hearts to you. We have to open up our minds to you. We have to grapple with who you are and how you work in this world. And we recognize that we are frail and there are seasons in everybody's life that that seem to not make sense, seem to be too hard. And we pray that you will prepare us for those days and for those who are going through those times now, that you will grant us the kind of hope that lifts us out of those times and that sustains us through those times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1968, a man named Kenneth Swan was a newly commissioned surgeon who was serving in Vietnam. The subject of one of Chuck Colson's Breakpoint radio broadcasts, Swan's very first surgical case centered on saving the life of a 19-year-old soldier who had stepped on a landmine. This soldier had lost his eyesight in both eyes, had lost both legs, but after seven hours of intense surgery, Dr. Swan was able to save his life. After working feverishly through the night, Swan was then disheartened by the criticism that he received from some of his fellow doctors the next day. Rather than praising his heroic efforts that kept him working all through the night, they felt this soldier's prospects for life didn't warrant the kind of effort that he put in. He shouldn't have bothered. They said a man with such extensive loss of limb and function would be better off dead. Dr. Swan was haunted by this scene for the next 20 years of his life until he decided to try and track down that particular soldier in order to find out what had become of his life. After two years of searching, he found that man, and much to the doctor's astonishment, this blind, wheelchair-bound man was living a productive, meaningful life. By then, he was in his late 40s. He was married. He had two daughters, had learned to scuba dive, and was holding down a job helping other injury survivors overcome their challenges. Giving all the credit to God, this man had refused to see himself as a victim and had refused to give up hope, the hope that he could have a full life. John Ortberg, the pastor of Menlo Church in California, once wrote, People who cultivate the habit of hope live better lives than those who cultivate the habit of despair. Let me say that again. People who cultivate the habit of hope live better lives than those who cultivate the habit of despair. We're going to put that concept to the test a bit this morning. As we continue in this series on the School of Hope, we're going to look at one of the most inspiring and at the same time troubling characters in the entire Bible. His name is Job. Our topic is Hope in Dark Times. And what I want to focus on this morning stems from this one amazing verse in the Old Testament that bears Job's name, Job chapter 13, verse 15, which says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Would you mind saying that with me out loud? It's real simple. uh, Just one line. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Let's do it again. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Now, there's a reason for having you repeat that with me. It's not just so that I'll memorize it. It's so that you know what we talked about this morning when you walk out of here. But my hope and prayer is that same kind of hope that Job has that we're going to probe in the next few minutes 
is the kind of hope that God is beginning to instill in your heart, in your mind, and in your experience. And that will only happen if the scriptures are tucked away in your mind so that when the difficult season comes, the Holy Spirit is able to bring that back to memory. And you remember some of what we're talking about here this morning. Now, first, we need to gain some clarity about what hope is. A couple of thoughts about this. The first is that biblical hope is not the same as optimism. Optimism comes to us in a variety of forms. Two shoe salesmen were sent to a remote third world country with the challenge of opening new sales territories. After three days in that country, the first salesman faxed his office saying, I will be returning on the next plane. I cannot sell shoes here. Everyone goes barefoot. <laughs> then there was no report from the second salesman for about two weeks. Finally, the office got a fat FedEx package that was mailed back to the home office with a message inside that read this way, 50 orders enclosed, prospects unlimited, nobody here has shoes. <laughs> Optimism shows up in a variety of forms, in a variety of sizes or shapes. Sometimes we, we're comfortable with the, the kind of thought of, of little optimism. Uh, little, optimi little optimism is a specific expectation that my car will start on a cold morning. I'll bet you had that prayer uttering uh, out of your lips a little bit earlier this week when it was 11 degrees when you walked out of the house. Big optimism looks forward to something even greater, though. It deals with large or even global issues. The second thought is that biblical hope is more like resilience if it's not quite like optimism. Psychologists say that resilience is that quality that allows some people to be knocked around by life and come back at least as strong as before. Resilience is what we want to have. It's not that we never hit a low, but resilience is the ability to hit the low time and get knocked off your pins, get driven to your knees, and yet come back later on as God lifts you. I see some nods. Some of you know what it's like to be knocked to your knees. You know what it's like as God develops that gritty resilience within you. Another definition is that resilience is that inner strength that enables you to cope with stress and hardship without falling apart. Doesn't mean that you're instantly singing songs of joy during those days, but you don't fall apart. You somehow press on and carry through. Now, isn't that something we all want? Yes? So let's put these concepts side by side. Optimism is when we state a wish or a desire that, for instance, all people of color will be treated the same way that white people are treated in every aspect of American life. That is a wish that we might express. Resilience is what Dr. Martin Luther King exhibited after being released from that Birmingham jail in 1963 and then walking right into threats of brutality as he and a large gathering of friends crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge into Selma, Alabama in 1965, fueled by the hope that by exposing evil in the light of day, permanent change would come. You see the difference? That is a resilience-driven kind of hope, far more than wishes. It's putting it into action. Now, these notes of clarity lead us, then, to the hope that we see in Job. And so we read these amazing words here. 
All of this is part of one quotation that's, that's, that's part of a larger speech that makes up three chapters of the book of Job. But just these four verses. He says, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come what may, why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. I want to break down those verses, and I want to analyze with you three convictions of Job that produce this hope in dark times. Here's the first conviction that Job writes with. It is that God acts with fairness. So he says in verse 13, Keep silent and let me speak, then let come what may. Some background is in order here. The opening chapter of the book of Job, which is in the Old Testament just before the book of Psalms, Job lets his, uh, uh, the, the opening chapter of Job lets the readers know what Job does not know in the story. So Job is presented as a real person, but the story is narrated for us, and we, we get a perspective that Job cannot possibly see. The story opens with Satan appearing before the throne of God, and his primary role is to play the, the, the role or the act of the accuser. And God asks, in your roaming back and forth, to and from, throughout the earth, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright in all his ways. Satan responds to God and he says, oh sure, that's easy. He's blameless and upright and he praises you with everything that he does because you've set a hedge of protection around him. You've blessed everything that he does. Let me touch Job's life and he will curse you. So Satan is allowed to administer suffering to Job's life as a test, a test of what's inside of Job's heart. Now, God is not producing the suffering. The evil one is, but God allows it in Job's life at this point. Job ends up losing his flocks and his herds. His ten children die in a horrific storm, and yet Job refuses to curse God. Satan reappears before God the second time, and again, he, he goes through a similar thing, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, oh yeah, I've been watching Job very closely. And he says, let me take it a step further. Let me touch him and make him suffer in a personal way, even more than he already is. And God says, all right, I'll let you touch his life and his body, but you may not take his life. And Job is covered from foot to head with boils, and he's miserable, and he detests life. But even despite this misery, he refuses to curse or to blame God. And the rest of the book takes place on the heels of that discussion in the opening two chapters. Because of this profound experience of loss and pain, the book of Job stands as a classic case study on human suffering. And so we raise these questions whenever we read through Job. Why is suffering allowed in this world? Or we see the range of, of emotions that people express when they are suffering that are very common to Job's experience. And we wonder, how do we cope with profound suffering today? And there are more questions that run on this same track that we ask whenever we think of Job.
The next thing that happens in the story is that four of Job's friends then arrive, first three and then one joins them later, and they offer their advice and their theories. The first three friends show up right after Job is in misery, and they sit with him for seven days. They don't say a word, but they just sit with him for seven days in silence. I don't know about you, but I would love to have friends like that. I remember one particular day, uh, right after my mom died 30 years ago, and he didn't say a word to me, but he showed up at the funeral, and he came back to my dad's house on the Cape, and he took the entire day, and I can still see him sitting there in the back of the room. You know who he was there for? Me. That's a friend. He just sat in the back of the room. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He just let me know he was there, and if I needed him, all I had to do was look, and he'd respond. These, that's the kind of friend that shows up here. So I don't want to be too harsh in my thoughts about these friends of Job because they do the right thing at first. But then they open their mouths. <laughs> and the wrong thing seems to come out wherever they turn. And each one offers some version of the blame game to Job. They are convinced that all suffering is a direct punishment or a direct correction from God instantaneously so that if something bad is happening in your life, it means that you stepped off the plan and now God is letting you have it because you did something wrong. That was the dominant theory in the world that was operating at that time. That everything that is bad in life happens as a direct result of something that you have done. I've got news for you. That has more to do with karma than it does with the God that we meet in the Bible. And they believe different versions of the same theme. That suffering exposes the sin or fault of the person who is suffering. And so they went after Job. And each one of them, in their own ways, some more polite than the others, some more harsh than the others, says to Job, there has to be some deep, dark sin that you're hiding, you're pretending to be this man who is following God faithfully. What is the deep, dark secret? If you just get it out and expose it to God, then we'd all know and maybe God would relent from what he is doing to you. You see the pattern? God's the problem here in their, in their eyes, along with Job. Job has done something wrong, and God is deliberately bringing this on Job. After listening to long, windy speeches, Job finally speaks. And Job 13, 13 sums this up. He says, keep silent and let me speak, then let come what may. In other words, I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to tell you what I think the truth is here. And I know that you're, not only are you listening, but God is listening. But I'm going to speak the truth as I know it. There is no great glaring sin that he is covering up in pride. He believes that God is sovereign, ruling over all, and that God is beyond understanding because we are finite and he is infinite. But Job longs for someone to arbitrate or to advocate for him to plead his case to God. If he has sinned against God, he would like to know what he has been charged with so that he can deal with it face to face with God. Essentially, Job is defending his belief that God treats people with fairness, that he doesn't inflict them with pain from things they're not even aware that they've done. Last Sunday, I quoted Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, and the quote that I made was, 
Disappointment occurs when the actual experience of something falls short of what we anticipate. There's a sense in which Job is disappointed with God here. Job is saying, I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. I think that I've done the best that I know how. I'm not aware of any great glaring sin that I've committed against God himself. And so I'm not going to make some declaration here like you guys are doing about God's punishment. I think God is fairer than that. And there's a sense in which Job is defending God while his friends are telling him that God is inflicting all of this upon him. Sometimes when you're going through dark times, you will get bad advice from well-meaning friends. I'll guarantee it. Because sometimes we step in and we just say the wrong thing. And sometimes people who have a faulty idea about God operate on what they think that they know and they offer that to you. And when that happens, don't go dark. Don't get in one of those places where you automatically buy into that faulty wisdom and say, God is somehow directly punishing me. We live in a broken world where there's a fair amount of suffering that falls upon everybody and there are some seasons in your life when it's more than in other times and there are some people who just seem to get a stronger dose of it than others. But this is common to life. Many people who experience physical or emotional suffering today find comfort in these words from Job. Why? We live in a world where suffering exists and where some carry far more than what seems fair to us. We live in a broken world where suffering exists even though we don't understand why and even though God very rarely gives us a direct answer to the question of why we go through what we go through. And human suffering is not always tied directly to your individual sins. Some people in those moments get to that place where with Job they despise living. And so we cry out to God and we plead with Job for an advocate. I love what he does here. Here's the second discovery we make from Job. That God is approachable. So he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And notice what comes right after that. I will surely defend my ways to his face. This is bold. Notice what he is saying here. He is not saying that God is about to take his life or slay him. That's not what he's saying. He is telling us how far his faith will stretch even though he slay me. Even if God takes me that far, he's saying, I will still hope in him. He is telling us about the resilient quality of the hope that he places in God, that God is worth it. Even if he would take me so far that I die, I will put my hope in him. Then in the same verse, Job's, Job adds what he hopes for. He says, I will surely defend his ways to my face. Okay, so what is Job expressing here? Job is saying that he believes that God is not only fair, but that God is approachable. He longs for an arbitrator because he believes that God will allow him to plead his case. That God can take our complaints even 
while he doesn't owe us an instantaneous answer, that God can handle it. And he believes that God is not only knowable, but God is approachable to the core. And here the book of Job teaches us something that is so important. That in those dark moments, even though you may say confusing words, even though your words may be tinged with pain and anger, we can call out to God. Job would also tell us that we don't have the right to summon God. It's not like God is at our beck and call. He's not subject to our judgments, but he hears our cries. So in chapter 14, verse 13, he cries, If only you would set me a time and then remember me. In the next verse he says, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. I have a dear friend who read Job while he was going through a very painful divorce. And a friend suggested to him, have you ever read the book of Job? He hadn't. And late at night, he found himself reading through Job. And he began to cry out and call out for an advocate when he read that word. And when he did that, his life started to change. He started to realize that there is a God who listens when we call out. It's why I wanted David and the team to learn that song, I Lift My Hands. Because there are times when you cannot sing praises to God. There are times when you are so low, you are so frustrated, you are so hurt, that the last thing you want to do is come here to, to church, to North River, and sing happy songs where we're all clapping and praising. And I've had people tell me, I, I just can't sing on those days. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing happy songs. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing songs about how it gets better and better the longer we work with him. But on those days when you can't sing, rather than despise the song choice, just lift your hands to God and say, I just want to believe again. And this is my act of surrender and saying, will you just bring me to that point where I can hope in you authentically. That's praise to God. That's real. And then here's the third discovery. God delivers the faithful. Look what he says here in verse 16. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. Job knew that he had put the Lord first in everything. That this had been the pattern of his life. He's not saying that he's perfect, but he's saying, I'm not a godless person. I'm a God-first person. By the way, I found a great example this week of someone who does that today. Watch this short clip of Matthew Slater, the special teams specialist for the Patriots, who recently told his faith story to Sports Spectrum magazine. Let's roll this right now. It's real short. <laughs> 